Hey listeners, a quick TLDR for today's episode. Uh, One, you will notice that there are whining dogs in the background. My two dogs did not feel good on the day we recorded, and so you might hear them, and I'm sorry for that small distraction. Also, uh, we really got into the philosophical weeds on this podcast, so we we really get into the kind of nitty-gritty and some philosophy stuff. Uh, It's a little different than the more formal question-and-answer nature of the podcast, so I think it was still a really valuable discussion, and uh, I hope you'll bear with us through that nerdy talk. Welcome, listeners, back to the MJ is Ignorant podcast. My name is MJ. I know a fair amount of stuff about several many things, but politics is not one of them. Fortunately, I have friends who know a lot about politics, and so on my show, I ask them questions about politics, and they help me understand it from a fundamental level. This month, we're going to talk about how to talk about politics. So, you know, the episode we're recording today is going to be a little bit meta Uh, And it's also going to break a little bit from the formal kind of question and answer format. We're going to go a little more discussion based. I was going to title this episode, What Do We Talk About When We Talk About Politics? But it seems everybody's riffing on that meme these days. So let's skip it. Today's episode is titled Debate, Dialectic and Discourse, What Socrates Got to Do with Politics? So in the podcast's first episode, we talked about what's going on in politics besides just people sitting in offices passing laws, and we stressed the importance of being engaged and informed as a voter. But what happens when you and another voter disagree on the issues? How do you sort it out? How do you reinforce your argument uh, for your own opinion? Or should you use what the other person says to refine your opinion and change it and make it better? Uh, Spoiler alert, I would go for the second version of that. I think when you learn new things, you should change your own opinions. But we can get to that as we talk about it. Uh, As I said, we're going to be a little more informal today, and we're just going to be talking about the process of talking and how it applies to politics, what the best way is for you and other people to get to the bottom of the issues and uh, be an informed community of voters. Joining us here in the studio is, of course, my good friend Josh Breskowitz. Now, Josh doesn't have any training or employment in politics, but he is that person who follows more politicians on Twitter and Facebook than all the people that follow you. He's that guy. And uh, he is just here to share his expertise from following politics closely. Uh, And then also joining us here in studio is my good friend, Michael Martino. Hey. (laughs) Uh, Michael also doesn't work in politics, but he has a very strong interest in philosophy, uh, and he'll be here talking with us about the the abstract nature of discussion and conversation and how we kind of get through issues together. So thank you both for being here with me today. Um, let's start, Michael, with you telling us a little bit about Socrates, the Socratic method, um, And what is dialectic? That's a word we use sometimes to discuss how we talk on this podcast. What does it actually mean? So, I mean, to not give it a technical definition, dialectic is having a conversation or discussion where the primary goal is to figure out what the truth is. Um, So that becomes the, like, prerogative of at least one of the people involved. Um, The big Socratic question, the Socratic why. Um, Slowly deconstructing every idea until you get down to the very root of the ideas. Um, I think when we talk about discourse, I think that's something that often gets missed is the, um, there's a lot of assumes and the point of dialectics is to uh, kind of attack the assumptions. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's the story about Socrates uh, holding up a carrot 
And he's like, you know, what is this? And they're like, a carrot. What's a carrot? A vegetable. What's a vegetable? A carrot. He's like, that doesn't tell me anything. <laughs> so uh, dialectics is, you know, breaking down, I guess, even just language itself. How do we use words? Um, and what do they mean to us? Um, so I guess that'd be my, like, short riff on what dialectics are in its relation to Socrates. Thank as, you. As you that. can imagine, he was a very annoying person. That's one of oh, I, I don't yeah, know about. Absolutely. <laughs> Students and fellow philosophers did not like Socrates. Mm -hmm. uh, neither did the government, but that's a different story for yep. a different time. <laughs> He's a very annoying person. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think an important part of what you mentioned there is this idea of truth. Um, so, I mean, let's take an example, education. We might talk about how it's either better for the government to provide free public education to everybody and put all their resources there, or it's better to provide vouchers so that parents can choose what private school to send their child to and not have to pay for it and let the schools privately decide what is taught. Um, so we can kind of take those as two sides of an issue, but at the end of the day, there's got to be something true about you know, what the best way to do that is. Um, and on that issue, I guess now that I bring it up, I would say there's probably not one thing that's true, but if you're going to use it to decide on policy, you've got to, you've got to know what's, what is true and what is not true. Um, and I think that for sure is something that's missing from politics, certainly missing from news coverage. Um, when we talk about these policies, we never get to that granularity about, well, there's some version of what's true and what's really the best way to do that. And that that fact seems to be missing from how we talk about politics. Because if, in my education example, if the Republican Party puts up their short slogan of school choice and uh, the Democratic Party puts up their short slogan of free public education, it now becomes this discussion of the people who I support say this is right, and it probably is. I feel like there's a lack of what Michael was talking about, where we ask why until we get to the truth. Um, yes, that's true. <laughs> um, it's it's actually really really entertaining whenever you see politicians either ask themselves, or like in something like a comp, like a confirmation hearing or something like that, or be asked by members of the public over and over again uh, that question of why. It usually produces the funny videos that you share around on Facebook. Um, and that can go both ways depending on your political persuasion, whether you think it's funny or not. Right. If anybody is up for a laugh and won't be offended by, you know, left-leaning politicians, you should go Google Maxine Waters' reclaiming my time for an, ex for an example of what Josh is talking about. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that, the thing that, that gets hard, cause it's easy to say, well, okay, you know, there, there's this nugget of truth or recognizing that there's truth that's missing from, from politics, but, and it, it's easy to say, well, that's a symptom of, of our modern politics, but that's, at the same time, it's um, this is where you get at the real difficulty because there's n there's not always like there's not always one truth that you can get at for every specific situation or circumstance or policy. Um, so what people will try to do then when they can't get at an exact answer of what to do in every specific circumstance is they'll come up with 
generalized rules of, okay, what seems to be the best general idea of how to handle things in general? And that's where ideologies come from. And then politicians bind themselves, politicians and people, like politicians being people, people bind themselves to ideologies. And then you add tribalism into that and mm -hmm. like a good healthy dose of of fear of the other side and all that. And that's where you get the, some of the ugliness that's just some of the ugliness that's part of quote unquote modern politics, but just some of the ugliness that's part of humans interacting with other groups of humans to begin with. Yeah. It sounds like on, on one side of that coin, you could use the generalizing to be able to speak a message to the public in a kind of short, shortened way where you don't have to explain every data point that supports your policy to them, but you can communicate it. But then that, that would be the, the best case scenario. The negative case scenario is that shortened version, like you said, does become just a slogan of the party. Um, it, it seems like there's a, a big danger there for things to get away from what's accurate really fast. Uh, and I think that there's good evidence that that's what happens in politics. It's even amazing to me that we get anything done at all. I mean, the part of the thing is like, in order to discuss ideas, people compartmentalize them. So when I come to a conclusion, I don't necessarily keep like in my immediate mental RAM all the things that I did to get to that conclusion. It might have taken years or decades to get to that. Um, but the thing that I just have is this little zip file of like, this is my conclusion. So when we talk about like discourse, part of the trouble is when you like ask somebody about it, like they're just opening up that little file. And then you'll see this almost with everybody, like a lot of political discourse starts out actually kind of okay. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's like this gap where they know that there's things that they learned, but they can't access it. And then all of a sudden it switches over into, I think often if we're talking about discourse, rhetoric, um, political leaders or influencers or anybody who's kind of like a big league in the like discussions or the um, setting of the paradigms uh, provide rhetoric. So then once people run out of like their original ideas, because they're not easily accessible, they just start throwing rhetoric back at each other, which is not at all a discussion. Um, it ends up just being kind of a fencing of rhetoric until somebody gets tired of it. Do you have a good uh, shortened working definition of rhetoric for us? No. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean I, so, so what what more specifically do you mean when you say that, that we we stop digging into what's actually true about the issues and start just using rhetoric? So Maybe what are some examples of that? So like uh, if I think about rhetoric and like the Greco-Roman like oratory skills, it's the idea of um, it's something that has impact, but not necessarily substance. Uh, I think it'd be a good way to define like a key element of what people usually define as rhetoric. Um, so back to like your point about the fear thing, like if I speak about fear, I don't need any facts to have it be good rhetoric as mm -hmm. long as it influences the people I'm trying to uh, talk to. Um, as well as things that like, we always want to try in like discussions to like you said, if we're looking for the truth, like try and find something measurable, empirical. Um, but people are emotional creatures. So when we're talking, like it's the rhetoric becomes a more powerful asset in uh, the disbursement of these like compartmentalized ideas because it triggers the emotions. But mm -hmm. then when people start trying to defend them logically, they lack the substance behind it since they've like have these powerful emotional like uh, memes of yep. uh, phrasing. It's, it's and, easier to say the Democrats just want to control what your kids are learning than to defend a privatized education on specific arguments. 
Mm. How, I mean, this is, this is where in all of these episodes, I get to this point where, you know, we, we have revealed the problematic nature of our politics and I become very hopeless. Like, how do we even get out of a ditch like that? I feel like we're in a deep anti-truth or anti-accuracy, you know, ditch right now in our politics where it really is just mudslinging about the other um, the other party and nobody's even really talking about why an idea or a policy is good for the country. This, this is... Uh... This is where maybe I break your hope a little bit more because the thing that's actually hopeful about what you just said is that you feel like now we're in this ditch, whereas at one point the world was not. Um, the the yeah. So 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 also what you can also break is like um, what a lot of Americans likely have, which is this very picturesque kind of picture of the founders. Um, and so it, it maybe depend on who you talk to. So if you talk to somebody, for example, in the Christian right, their idea of the founders will likely be these people with a uh, very religious conviction that wanted to worship their own way, and so they went and found their own country to do that. Um, And that is not fully accurate, but it's not fully inaccurate, and it's the picture that that person will have. Um, If you talk to somebody who's really into philosophy and enlightenment values, like I think the three of us probably would all agree we are, we'd say, no, the founders were these people that like were really influenced by the Enlightenment and they wanted to form a country based on ideals of, uh, what can we say, uh, freedom and equality and democracy and pluralism and representative government. Like they had all these really high ideals and they kind of formed their own government based on those. Um, so so break break my version of like, these special philosopher founders that I put up on a pedestal. You you say it hasn't, you say that I'm saying it hasn't always been a mudsling fest. Uh, right. Except the trouble is it always kind of has been like the, the idea that I, I feel like part of the, part of the intention behind the topic today is, is it's another one of those things where it all boils down to things are broken today. How do we fix them based on, you know, in this case, having this conversation about, you know, how should dialectic and politics work? How can we bring that back? The whole art of politics arguably has never been totally based on the idea of we sit down calmly and we rationally back questions back and forth until we arrive at a truth that that we both agree upon. It's It's kind of always been, well, we do that, we do some of that. But at the same time, we also have to take account of all of the other human ugliness that we bring with us as well. So we have to contend with the fact that people have, you know, even if you're you're arguing points back and forth calmly and you're starting to reach some kind of conclusion, many people are going to have X, Y, or Z fears about that conclusion that's starting to come about. And that by itself may be enough to scuttle it as the thing that we should do, even if it's the quote-unquote right answer based on the the calm debate that's otherwise taking place. Like, we could all have a rationalized debate going back and forth between, you know, different educational policies, let's say, to go back to that one. And we come to the idea that, you know what, the best thing would be is if we all pooled our money and we all 
you paid for each other's education and that everything was was free at the point of delivery and all that. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but let's say that that's what was arrived at. But there would be, even if that's what everyone kind of sort of agreed to, it would be like, yeah, but I still don't want the government taking my money and controlling it. I'm I'm uncomfortable with that. And it's like, why? Well, just because I am. Mm-hmm. And like you hit the point where like it's more emotional than anything else. It's either emotional or it's tribal or it's, well, my team doesn't believe that or whatever it is. And those things all suck, but they're a part of yeah. how this process goes. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like nowadays you have this, um, it feels like we talked about this, I think last time we where we talked, well, it was last time because we were talking about political parties the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of, you know, had this lingering question of, you know, are political parties a good idea? Well, whether they're a good idea or not, they're a thing that happens because of all of this other all of these other tendencies that develop around otherwise rational debate. Uh, and as far as whether or not ugliness has always been a part of it and like mudslinging and all of that, the election of 1800 was one of the ugliest elections in American history. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams hated each other's guts. It was unbelievably vitriolic and destructive to the country. We don't think much about that anymore because, well, just like every other part of human history, we friggin' got through it somehow. Mm. The thing that's actually hopeful is this all sucks, but we'll get through it again somehow. 1800 wasn't Jefferson Burr? Uh, no. No, Adams Jefferson. All right. Uh, Federalist s- versus Democrat. So, I think we need to to backtrack because... Um, yeah, that was a lot of stuff. No, that's great. Uh, you've been telling us, Josh, how human... Human features of how we do things and how we negotiate power and how we come to final agreements about what we do, all those human elements override the process of rational debate. Um, and Right, which I know you don't like. <laughs> I don't. Josh can see in the studio how uncomfortable I am. Right. Um, you know, being somewhat of a rationalist, that whole argument he just made drives me crazy. I've got a little eye tick going right now. Um, so, and you're like, how do we bring the rationality and only the rationality to it? Yeah. You don't because someone is, once, once you're done making your rational argument, someone will charge into the room and go Trump and, and that'll be about it. Right. So where I want to backtrack to is then let's, let's determine before we even talk about rational decision-making or rational collective discussion versus some other either rhetorical or party-based way of getting things done. Let's kind of talk about, is is this rational, dialectic, Socratic method thing, is that the right way to decide on things? Um, I could just, you know, out and flip my hand and say, well, I think it is, because uh, I do, but let's break it down. Like, this podcast is about breaking things down to their fundamentals, stripping away the partisanship, stripping away the kind of heartfelt opinion part of it and saying like what can we say for sure from a really objective perspective so is this dialectic that we've been defining and kind of talking about is that the best way to determine facts and to make decisions ironically we probably need like one of us play devil's advocate since we don't have somebody to like challenge because i think we're all pretty agreed on it yeah um but just for the sake of like well in the the kind of 
the diversity part of today's episode and guest panel is another thing I want to cover, but it's a uh, it's further down the list of bullet points. But so the the concept of like, is it the right way? Well, we don't know. The idea would be you use, and this is where it becomes redundant. It's like, well, if you believe dialectics is the way to do it, you would use dialectics to prove dialectics, mm-hmm. and that's where like I have uh, other friends who like are very skeptical of logic, like philosophical logic. Yeah. Uh, so they see, what they see what would redundant. those friends say to you? So, the one of my friends described it as um, those concepts of logic similar to math, which is where like I usually drop the math on people. Like math is true. Like one is always one. It's like and he's like, okay, one as a concept is a human concept. Like you can't show me a one in the universe. And like I never have had a way to like argue with X. I'm like, well, but it's true. Like it's it just mm-hmm. it is. Um, yep. But I am limited by my human experience biased. So if he says like well that's your human bias it's like well like there's no way for me to step outside of that um i can try to be metaphysical about it but i can't necessarily prove that either so it gets real messy real quick so there's a real danger here that we're going to get far too far into the weeds this is is actually an Um, amazing topic this is the thing that will make the, the will make any empiricist nuts is the fact that math is not an empirical thing and right. can only be proven yeah. kind of by itself, right. which doesn't actually fit the pattern of empirical evidence. But because yep. math, uh, math is a philosophical concept or a logical concept, not an empirical one based on evidence, the scientific method. Yeah. So f- full disclosure for our listeners, uh, the November episode was meant to be uh, a discussion of local politics with some uh, local Madison, Wisconsin uh, office holders and people in commissions and committees. Um, we had some great guests lined up to talk about local politics and the scheduling did not work out. So if you're sitting in your car or wherever it is you listen to politics and you're like, why am I stuck with these three nerdy, educated white guys listening to them get into the weeds about dialectic? That's why. And so if you know, if you find yourself frustrated by that reality, I'm sorry. Uh, but I hope you stick with the podcast because I think that, you know, this kind of stuff, I truly believe that it will be helpful to our greater political pursuits. Um, so going back to what you're talking about, about numbers, um, I'll, I'll throw in a rationalist concept here about uh, probability, thinking about knowledge as probability. Um, and so as you've said, it is the limitation of our human experience that numbers exist and are consistent. So based on everything any human has ever written down that they observed, holding one apple and one orange next to each other and counting them yields that you have the same amount of things. You have one of one thing and one of another thing. And based on that, humans throughout their recorded history have said, okay, one is a thing that is absolutely true. And as you mentioned, there might be some experience outside of our own experience that would say, actually, that's not true. Sometimes one is something different. Um, we don't have that recorded experience, so we don't. it doesn't factor into our decision-making. What we can say is that the number of times that one and all other numbers and all other mathematical concepts have been consistent and have accurately described what we see in the world, that amount of experiences is so high that the non-zero probability that numbers are not real or are not consistent is so small that it simply is not practical to factor it into our thinking about things. So if you take that knowledge as probability approach, we can say probabilistically it is so likely that numbers are true 
that we can just call them true as we move into talking about logic. Then we can say our logic equations are true. And again, we don't have any experience where logic equations have been untrue. So then that non-zero probability that logic is untrue is so small that we don't need to factor it in. And that's where we get to this point where sitting on logic is something we feel abundantly confident in, even though, Michael, your friends might throw an example at you saying you might not know that that's true. That probability, even if it's non-zero, is so small that it's impractical to consider it. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of that has to do with like the uh, immense emergence of postmodernism. Um, I don't know if either of you are familiar with Dugin over Russia. I am not. Enlighten us, please. So, simple put, he's kind of a counsel to Putin, but he's a postmodernist. And the, basically, the concept is like the Western uh, narrative is wrong. And not necessarily wrong, but it's um, it's just one narrative. He believes in a bipolar or multipolar world. So if Russia wants to be like an entirely religious nation and believe entirely in creationism, the West has no right to come in and say like, well, science is right, not religion. Or what? insert any like disagreement on uh, something that you could say like, well, we believe in logic. And they could be like, well, we just don't value logic like you do. Philosophically, logic doesn't mean something to us and you have no right to enforce logic on us is kind of the idea behind uh, Dugan's postmodernism and like rhetorically and like um, dialectically a fantastic way to debate things but again being somebody who believes in logic it ultimately kind of collapses again for me with math but that's you know big fan of we're going Greek Pythagoras like mm-hmm. his reason he thought geometry was sacred is because it represented these just like perfect ideas very well aware that the world isn't perfect but the ideas themselves were sound so to speak um, but like, if we're going to bring it a little bit into the political sphere, um, a little bit of like the U S Russia thing, uh, there's a huge amount of like, if you look at like RTV, uh, and stuff like that, where you see postmodern, uh, narratives being pumped into the American dialogue. So that's where you see like, um, and this- there's, there's, there's many things that postmodern can mean, and it can mean different things in different subjects. Like if we were talking about literary criticism, right. postmodernism might be something different. Mm-hmm. So yep. when you talk about a political philosophy, how do you define postmodernism? Uh, the multipolarity, like nothing can be assumed to be true. Okay. It's, it only is true as I believe it to be so true. So it's, it's kind of a relativism. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolute. Okay. Absolute relativism, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Hardcore relativism. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so like from a political thing, like specifically with the discourse, um, if you believe that Russia's having any influence, but if you just look at the fact that RTV is so prevalent in like the counter media in America, uh, you see this like destructive idea of like nobody can be right uh, concept coming in on both sides, which just dis- is toxic for discussion. Because if I can just say, well, this is my opinion, that's yours, and you have no right to, like, it destroys any empirical, logical, like, it destroys the ability to have truth is what it does. It's an incredibly toxic format. It's, the interest in me is it's very chaotic, which is exciting, mm-hmm. but it just, it doesn't allow for anything to be built. At least that's my personal opinion on it. Yeah, and you mentioned the redundancy of Socratic discussion or what we call dialectic Um, which you can think of also in the scientific method. It's this iterative process. You, by doing the same process of discussion and ruling out what seems to be false over and over and over again, 
you arrive at something which is as true as you can determine it to be with the information you have. I mean, what's what's the devil's advocate to that? It it seems so foreign to say that there would be another way to determine what's right than to look at the information you have and if things work, they work in favor of your argument. If they don't work, they work against that and I got a pretty good swing at this, but do you want to step in? Well, this might be a little bit general, but the so let's say you're not let's say your your particular outlook on things is not so much um, it's not so much geared at trying to find the truth, so to speak, in each and every situation for the sake of its own self. Let's say that your your goal in your mind is to talking about political goals now let's mm-hmm. say your goal is to produce an effect on society that you think is good this is where like ideology comes into it again like yeah there there comes a point where if that's your goal it honestly may not matter what the quote-unquote facts are in a given circumstance because well that doesn't fit the goals that i have here this doesn't impact right my life or other people's life in the way that if we can if we can pull a very american and very fiery kind of example for that it would mm-hmm. be religion mm-hmm. um you could come to the senate floor armed with you know binders full of accounts and data about the negative psychological impacts of religious beliefs and you can put that on the table and say based on all of this evidence of negativity for individuals with religion and listeners I'm not this this is an example this is a little example in a vacuum I'm not trying to make an argument against religion but somebody could come in to the congress with all that data and say based on that we should try to um, eradicate religious ideas from our policy making process as much as we can um, and all of a sudden you've got somebody else with an idea of I forget how you put it, but an effect you want to have on people. Right. Um, the Congress is made up of humans, and some of them might have some religious ideas right. about what effect Good they luck have with that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So right. that, that's, that's why Richard Dawkins is so angry all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Richard Dawkins is angry because he's not a very nice person, right? <laughs> He's not not a nice person and he doesn't understand that human nature precludes the things that he's saying from having any impact on society. Just just a commentary. The amount of times atheists seem to not understand human nature just kills me. Absolutely. (laughs) That's a thing. We're emotional, irrational creatures. Why do you expect rationality? Whatever. Uh, Follow follow, uh, atheist Twitter. Some (laughs) of those folks need to For that matter, (laughs) a lot of of human achievement has been arrived at, including things like art and all kinds of things because of the lack of rationality, Mm -hmm. too. So, like, you can sit there and lament that as well if you want, but at the same time, you're like, if if you're like, oh, I... I actually want you to expand on that a little bit. What... What are some human achievements, and you're talking like population-wide, like yeah. major things that have happened in the absence of rationality? I mean, th- there, are, there are areas of human thought that – and it, th- this is where you'll have to forgive me because sometimes I'll conflate like rationalism and empiricism as the same thing even though that's not necessarily yeah. what we're – I think you can – I think you can think of the modern rationalist movement as 
more toward that empiricism empiricism label right like post then, post enlightenment it's driven very much by like the scientific method and like that being like yep. the the primary method of inquiry yep uh, into Bayesian the truth of reasoning things. all that stuff right. it's not necessarily connected to what was philosophically called rationalism right. pre-1900 right and just to be clear like that that empiricist mindset where like let's let's shorthand it to where we use the scientific method to determine like truth in most circumstances that is probably as it should be because that has produced incalculable benefit for human society. Like the Mm -hmm. fact that the three of us are even sitting here alive having not died in childbirth from some disease is largely... None of us have ever had polio. Right. Uh, You know, it takes me seven minutes to drive to work. Right. You know, all this kind of stuff in our modern society comes directly from that scientific method. Right. But now, but at the same time, you know, you can take there. There are other areas of human human activity. I was I was going to put it as human human rational activity, but that's confusing terms here. But human uh, human mental activity, human thought that aren't necessarily rationalist based. Art is a big one. Religion is obviously another big one. As far as what good, so art, I think is. I'm sure there's an argument against art being good in and of itself. And honestly, there's an argument to be made that some art is trash art. Yeah, um, th- there's a big argument against art, and it was Socrates who started making it, but we're not even going right. to go down that right. rabbit hole. As Martino said, Socrates was kind of an annoying person. Yes, so. absolutely. I'm with you there. <laughs> um, if, if you want to take another one and look at religion, I mean, I know it's not exactly in vogue right now among strictly rationalist thinkers to think of religion as a good thing, but religion has been an incalculably good thing in a lot of different historical circumstances. Mm-hmm. And even for right now, many people are motivated by their religion to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and... And, and not vote for a certain politician. Right. And on uh, both sides of that. On both sides of that. Mm-hmm. Like either either vote or not vote for the person that you think should be the should be the candidate who wins because that's the person who obviously stands for goodness. Some people agree with you on the basis of their religious thinking. Mm-hmm. Um but even towards things that are more can be more purely thought of as like good results, like like the indigent being helped and you know, deaths being avoided and things like that. Religion produces a lot of good in the world. It can also produce bad things, mm-hmm. but then again, so can science because it <laughs> it produced the thing with North Korea that we're dealing with right now indirectly. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? That's an excellent point. Um, so, how... Can't use... remember how we just got there. But... Yeah, it's okay. That's, uh, we, we already... You know, warned the listeners that this would be highly informal. So, well, and I can bring it back to almost at any point how this relates to the discussion thing. So, like, I was saying I was going to take a swing, and it's the oh, religion right, thing. right, right, right. Um, like something that like is a personal like peeve of mine is that like religion isn't like something to be discussed. That's probably because there's like people have trouble discussing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, when I have some friends in DC, and they'll be talking about like, oh, I can't understand why this is happening. I'm like, religion. And like it's not religion's the problem, but like it's religious motivation, religious values and philosophies um, that you see bleeding into policies. Um, which personally, there's like a separation of church and state thing that I'm like that doesn't seem right. But you can't necessarily tell somebody if that's their philosophical grounds for determining it. Like that's what they're gonna do. Um, and then this is one of those like funny things about logic is like you can have a logically enclosed 
system of religion. So it's like, okay, well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the world we, was created by God. logically valid, but not sound. Exactly. So like God created the universe and it's like, oh, well, we have all this math and stuff. Well, that's the devil trying to pull you away from God. Like closed right. loop. Like yep. it's yeah. Sound, but not accurate. Um, uh, valid, but not sound. Valid, but not sound. There we go. Yep. Um, I've seen MJ almost devour his own hand talking to me about this. And about yeah. This, just, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's like, that's where things get tricky. Cause like one of the things that prior to this podcast, but even in this podcast, it always comes down to like, it's the nuance that gets so tricky. So you say like political discourse, it's like, oh, we're, we're talking policy. Okay. And now all of a sudden we're talking religion. And now all of a sudden we're like, it just, it spirals mm-hmm. out of control really, really quickly as far as like, what are we actually talking about? Which I think is kind of why we leaned like yep. topically towards like, how do we just talk about things? Because there's a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, that's, that's where we kind of got into the discussion in the first episode of the podcast. What is politics? Well, it's a huge question. Um, that was the first thing Josh said when I asked the question. That's a huge question. Um, there's so much to talk about, and it's all very complex. Um, figuring out how to have an educated populace by making policies of how we pay for and facilitate educating children is massively complex and complicated. Uh, that's not even the biggest thing that the and that's not even does. That's not even the biggest, exactly, yep. Um so let's do it this way. Let's uh, a way that a lens that I like to use on the podcast is helping and hurting. So let's come back to politics and say, how does rationalist discussion and reasoning, or you can call it dialectic, you can call it Socratic method, whatever label you put on it, how does that specific approach? help in politics and how could it hurt? I think it can help because it can crack the door for somebody. Like if, like generally people get fairly, especially as they age, they get, um, they develop a set of opinions based on their observations and, and like they come up with a framework for how the world works and how, or how they want it to work. And then they, they build life around that and, live their life around that and probably vote based on that and so forth. Um, having this type of discussion, the, the idea of discussion through dialectics, the asking kind of the asking why over and over again, it can crack open the door for that person, whether they're, whether that person is quote unquote right or wrong, whether they believe things that are constructive or destructive, whatever in, in the interlocutor's view, it's still, you know, whatever the view of the interlocutor towards this person who has these beliefs is, questioning them in this way allows them to maybe open the door just a little bit to, okay, other perspectives, question mark, is there value there? If there is, maybe I can incorporate some of them. If there's not, then I won't. Or, you know, it helps. Mm-hmm. The person still makes their own judgment, but it at least allows the door to be open. Someone's eyebrow may raise if they're asked if they're asked why at just the right point in their yeah. reasoning. So you're, you're bringing this really concretely into me as a voter approaching somebody else as somebody who would probably vote for something different and starting an actual person-to-person conversation with them. Right. So somebody says to you, we should build a wall, and you start in on the why stuff, you're going to, like I mentioned at the beginning, be able to refine your view right. instead now, of just fight for what you think is right. Now, now, the trick where it can can really hurt is if you're deliberately trying to be Socrates, who again was kind of a jerk and who just kind of kept asking the questions over and over and over again. 
Um, I'm paraphrasing Socrates a little bit, but I, I mean that, 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 that that's absolutely what his reputation was. Like, right, like, you're absolutely right to put it that way because he would not relent on the people he was questioning about this. Right, and honestly, that's why that's why we still know of Socrates today because you know this method of of his relentless ability to do that. But at the same time, the place where this type of dialogue can really not help in politics is when you start adopting this posture on asking questions for the sake of itself and not for the sake of, okay, politically, what am I trying to accomplish here? Am I trying to get an idea of what this person's opinion is to appreciate what it is? Or am I trying to change this person's opinions? Or am I trying to build a world that I'm trying to figure out how to build, or am I trying to achieve a certain policy, or am I answering, asking these questions over and over again because dialectic in and of itself is the mm-hmm. the way to do things, and I'm just asking questions for the sake of themselves. And I think often it's... Um, the classic I, I, devil's advocate guy who I, just asks yeah, the question. I, I know the other party's stupid, so I'm going to reveal it. You know? Right, and yeah, yeah that's yeah. you get and the you, gotcha And you get situation. these really... And what's funny is when you act like that, you are likely to enter into fallacious reasoning very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really easy to straw man in that case. Right. Um, so to be like, wow, you want to spend all our money putting a wall around the entire country, even though nobody's trying to come in illegally? Why? When clearly you've, you know, distorted their argument and you're not actually looking for the specifics of what they're trying to accomplish. You're trying to prove to everybody that you're right and they're wrong. Right. Or trying to like get like a sense of moral superiority. That's yep. you. You've gone from thinking you're this hardcore rationalist to actually really just wanting to feed your emotion of feeling like you're right and that you have, mm-hmm. and yes. that you're getting righteous justice on this person for being wrong. Yes, it's a danger. Uh, it's a danger for us. <laughs> and that comes back to like the earlier thing is like, are we talking to figure out the truth, or is it like two people coming together trying to like just prove each other wrong? Like yeah, the, what? That's, that's where we get the ground rule of the podcast, which is no debating. Right. Um, we, I have no interest in one person leaving right and one person leaving wrong. Mm-hmm. Sorry, continue. Um, so, like, since, like, one, two years ago now, uh, when we started just talking about, like, the discourse issue, um, I started experimenting since I, I'm, i like, a habitual dialectic. But part of, the, like, the logical thing is I learned you have to do it in a way that's pleasant for people mm-hmm. because it can be very unpleasant for people to, like, poke and prod at ideas. Um but I would, like, try and find people that I, like, I felt were very close-minded, but, you know, there's a personal bias there. Um, but I found, like, a way to be effective where all of a sudden we were, like, having an honest conversation where there wasn't, um, like, the rhetorical triggers. I could actually see them, like, pulling from their own experiences and, like, reasoning out things, even if it's within their realm of reason. Um, was by working with them to deconstruct and reconstruct their own view. Um as if they were trying to teach it to me. So my like mm-hmm. approach was, I just want to know how you think. And then as I like work around, like, okay, so you believe this. Okay. Why? And it's all my questions aren't geared in like trying to like trap them. The whole thing is I want to understand exactly how you try and see the world behind your eyeballs type thing. And what I've realized is if you like help people see what the different blocks are that they've compartmentalized, um, two things, a, they sort of realize, okay, this is what I actually believe. And then they can talk about it because now they've like unzipped the file. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you'll realize like they've like built these like tight knit blocks of conclusions, but there'll be loose blocks that like don't fit into like the conclusion they made. And those are the kinds of like little bits and pieces you can move around. Um, I can't remember what the specifics were, but I was trying to prove to 
a Trump supporter, like why Bernie Sanders was the perfect one for like the country. Um, and like and for their interests, probably. Right. Yeah. No, it was one of those, like you get down, you just try and get down to the roots and then you can, from the roots kind of like make a linear step and say, okay, well they're doing the same thing. This is the, like the policies are totally different, but the goal is the same. So it's like, we all want to be happy. So, like, once you break down, like, oh, uh, this is what I want, you can then actually take one of those, like, happy blocks, which fits just anywhere, and you can just carry it over to a different idea. And they'll, like, be like, well, okay, yeah, that, I guess the goal is to be happy. And right. it just at least changes the perspective and not to, like, this fortress. It, like, leaves now something open. Now you've opened the door to say, okay, what if we accomplished being happy with this policy? And now that whole, but that's a Bernie policy, so I will never consider it you've broken that yeah because then they'll be yeah. like okay okay maybe that's not so bad like i still believe in this thing but all they're not as defensive and it creates like at least a temporary conversation an open conversation right. breaks breaks off the tendency for the person to be like yeah but that guy's a bolshevik or whatever like the yep. the immediate like defensive reaction mm-hmm. against it yep. pretend, like, breaks the slogan they have ready for you right that being said it's um, immensely tedious it's one of those things like, absolutely this stuff takes right. time and like yeah. Doing things right is hard and takes time, and we should be up for the challenge. Um, so that that approach that you're describing, you get somebody to break down their own um, their own beliefs to the point where they can rebuild them back up mm-hmm. from a from a less kind of partisan or emotional level. Um, I think another good technique where you can use rationalism for good and not for um, you know, kind of annoying people or trying to prove them wrong. Um, we mentioned the straw man fa- fallacy where you take somebody's argument, distort it, and then argue against it. But you're arguing against the distorted version. The counter to the straw man fallacy is the steel man approach, where every time you're talking to somebody about a position you disagree with, you try to state it in its best possible light. You try to say the position that you disagree with in the most positive way that you can agree with so that you can try to stay on the same terms with that person you're talking to. So a uh, step back to the um, harm versus good yeah. rational. Um, we kind of talked about like, there's this not entirely rational, rational approach that like you see a lot of like hothead atheists do, uh, which is very entertaining to watch, but it neglects things that like true rational and logic would be like humans are emotional creatures. So that changes how you then approach. You don't try to, reason with somebody if you logically think about how to have a conversation mm-hmm. logic dictates you don't use logic in a conversation until you've established rapport and develop emotional like triggers and connections yep. with somebody yes um, so i would say like, rationally we have a bunch of data that says that that's an effective way yeah, to have it, conversations it, that's one of those like why it's like well logic's the right thing because logic literally encompasses like defining why everything else works but mm-hmm. that's could yeah. be argued I, just, no i think that's <laughs> my an, humble opinion i think that's an excellent point um if, if the rationalist approach, um, if the dialectic approach is all about using all of the information that you have to make the right decision, um, the way that humans think and feel and reason, whether it's strictly rational or not, is part of the body of information that we have. So it should be factored in. Um, and that comes to religion, too. Um, the fact that religious big ideas are a large motivating factor for members of the public is some of the information that you need to carry with you into discussions with people and into doing politics together. (laughs) 
So the final segment that I want to do on today's episode about how we talk about politics is um, on kind of diversity and privilege. Um, so you can't see us listeners, but you can probably hear it in our voices. Um, we're sitting here in the studio with three white males uh, who are all college educated. We all have bachelor's degrees, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we all have liberal politics. Uh, we all probably voted Democratic uh, most recently. And in the in the very large field of things, um, we're we're wealthy, you know, we're, we're like wealthy Americans. We're not the super wealthy, but we're also not poverty stricken. Um, and we certainly aren't coming from any other parts of the world where the socioeconomic status is way lower. Um, so all that's to say, like the three of us chatting today have like one very specific demographic that we bring to the table in these discussions. If we were to walk out into the voting populace right now, that would not be the case for everybody we, we would encounter. Um, we're also all straight dudes. Um, so that's just another way in which we're all the same. And there's lots of people walking out in the world who are not the same as us. So that's to set up the question, who are we educated liberal white dudes to walk into the voting public and say, Hey, you should be using dialectic to figure out what policies are best. Like where does the privilege sit in even that whole idea of that we would have any ability to tell anybody how they should think or talk about politics? That's a really, really good question. I mean, and I don't know that I have a great answer. I don't know that I have a great answer saying that anybody has the grounds to do that because, I mean, a big part of where we're at right now politically, like I'm just going to identify with both groups for a second. There are especially people of color right now who wouldn't necessarily want somebody like me to go up to them and say, hey, you should try to make nice with and really use dialectic with somebody from the Trump administration Mm -hmm. or a Trump voter. Like there are people in this country who are like, actually, I want to fight those people. And I want to fight them until they're all gone and I don't have to have them in my politics anymore ever, period. Yep. And spoiler alert, Josh B. is one of those people (laughs) (laughs) to a certain extent or sometimes depending on the amount of drinks. I mean, I mean, you know, the level that's the thing is human human beings are, again, emotional creatures. So, you know, I won't pretend that I don't identify more with those folks than the other side. But at the same time, there are also a lot of. A lot of folks, whether they're they're white folks or or people of color who maybe worked a manufacturing job or who have lost a series of manufacturing jobs in the last five to 10 years, who have been told, oh, all these jobs are going out of the country and who see or to robots or to robots or whatever it is, or who have the impression that, you know what, a lot of people of color or immigrants, they get a lot more stuff than I do. And, you know, I was born here and my father did this job and my grandfather did this job. And what the heck is the problem here? And this this dude says that he's all going to fix it. And these are the sets of policies like building this wall and all of that that are going to that are going to fix all of this. And you know what? All those other people who who are trying to all, all the like the, the women in the women's march and all the, the Black Lives Matter folks, you know, the impression on those folks is these are all a bunch of people agitating 
who already are being given a whole bunch of rights that mm-hmm. I feel like are being taken away from me. Yep. And so we're sitting here trying to tell that person that, that to use dialectic yeah. more when really well, make sure you ask him why. Yeah. When really what that person wants to do is throw those people out of our politics to never have to deal with them again mm-hmm. and to have the country run the way they feel that it should be run henceforward forevermore. There's also um, a big like inequality piece to this. Um, you know, we, we use the education example, but, uh, as it turns out in America, we haven't quite solved the educating the public problem, even though it is one of our smaller problems. Uh, we haven't solved it. We haven't figured out how to do it well. Um, and so you're going to have a lot of voters who don't even have the educational, you know, prerequisites necessary to know what's even being talked about. If we say, start using dialectic and the Socratic method to determine your politics, like, right. What, so again, we're sitting here talking right, about plenty a thing. Of, plenty of people would be like, and also who the hell are you to tell me to do yes. that when either A, yep. my rights are being infringed and my civil rights are being taken away or on yep. the other side, I've lost several jobs and like some, I need somebody to fight for me. Well, not even that. You could have somebody, you know, with a couple of MDivs and a PhD in theology, um, who's got a, a real strictly uh, kind of Christian right approach to a lot of these political questions. And you come and tell them, like, make sure you use this Greek philosophy and the enlightenment to like determine your politics. And they'd be like, I fold my hands every morning. That's how I <laughs> determine my politics. So th- there's a huge unsolved here where, you know, we've been talking for nearly an hour about why this methodology is so good and we think it should be infused into our politics, but we don't have either a right or an ability to infuse it into every voter. Right. It's my opinion that doing this is a potential source of empathy with the other person that you're talking about or talking with. You know, at the same time, it's important to be able to identify with those who don't have much interest in doing that right now because they feel threatened in some way, whether that's real or whether it's not. You know, if someone is feeling that, you can't necessarily think that you can walk up to them and be like, here's what you need to do. Really, what you sh- I think what you should do in that circumstance is have a discussion with them, not about what they believe and what they think, maybe using dialectic as part of your, your tool set. But, you know, n- no one who thinks that, you know, what we really need is a good dose of rationalist thinking in this country. So I'm going to go to this set of voters or that set of voters, and I'm going to tell them how they should be thinking and asking each other questions, mm-hmm. that you probably can't do because that that's not showing enough empathy to people's situations, especially if they're in a group, whatever side of the political spectrum they're on, that's feeling aggrieved about something right now. And again, it's like that's redundant to logic because logic would tell you like that's a terrible way to do it. It's, right. not, it's just not going to work. Right. Going back before, <laughs> like you need to establish emotional rapport with somebody and all that before mm-hmm. you... Yeah, exactly as Michael said. And then, like, one of the really tricky things, and, like, this is the whole, back to, like, the Dugan thing. This is where, like, he wags his finger at, like, the Western thing is, like, we say that there is some kind of higher truth. Like, there is a right. Like, that there is a singular right way. We might not know it 100%, mm-hmm. but we can say, in this direction is right. Um, that's a assumption. It's the whole, it's, we believe it's true because the systems that we built around it. It's an assumption that there is 
some it, accurate version. And of we use the whatever. same system to like validate itself. Like we mm-hmm. know we, that this is right because look, it proves it's right. Um, which is where it gets really tricky because it's like if you have like because you you need belief. This is where like religion and like even science. When you look at the Enlightenment, you saw the kind of this like intersection because you have to believe in the science. You have to say, I believe that this thing is right because it, it's kind of self-proving the same way like, oh, God is real because God is real. Um, there's much more eloquent, or mm-hmm. I would say there's a lot more eloquence in like mm-hmm. the type of loop logic that defines logic. Um, but there's a level of belief and that's, for me, like I always like, I'm a big proponent of like liberty and freedom. Like I slightly idolize the founding fathers. I know that like, there's them as people and there's them as mythology. Mm-hmm. So I usually use them as mythological fig- figures just because you get rhetorical impact out of that. Um, but the idea of liberty is like, I like it could be the right way. I still have no right to like tell you to do that. I have like the concept is I have within my realm of like, I need to protect myself. And that's where things get tricky is when the rhetoric of like danger comes into play. Because then all of a sudden me changing the policy is about me protecting like my family and my livelihood, which then gives me like a card to do all sorts of terrible things. Cause that's where um, it's no longer just, we're talking about this thing is it's now infringing on my like uh, survival or at least I see it that way. Um, but again, like, yeah, it becomes this juxtaposition of like, when you think logically, it's like, okay, you have no right to tell me about anything, but if we can kind of agree, hopefully that I, I think I said we kind of believe that this is like a good thing that this would help we're in this juxtaposition of like you want to help but you really can't like you don't have the right to change that um this is one of those weird things about just politics and leadership in general um which could be a whole nother conversation (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah if you think uh if you think you really do have the right answer now how do you go about getting buy-in from people Mm -hmm. without just looking from above and saying well, my special rationalist brain with my wealthy, I don't necessarily want to say white, but it's often true, <laughs> with my wealthy white, you know, male Western male upbringing, absolutely. Um, what's interesting is you you look at the uh, the Congress and it is made up of people with like a really high educational pedigree. Um, you've got all these guys who you know, their families probably paid out of pocket for Ivy League educations in law, and then they eventually, you know, got into government. That's the, true for a lot of people in government. Um, but they're still not using really hard logic to do what they do, which is interesting. The, 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 the way that a politician is elected who ends up doing whatever of whatever party they are, who does a bunch of good things for people, the way that person is elected is not because all of the policies make the most sense as a result of a rational conversation using dialectic that we've all had as a country for two straight years. It's whoever wins basically the first off the emotional appeal mm-hmm. of – this works for, this will work for you this will work for your family you know have enough faith and confidence to give this a shot here's the policies if you can broadly get behind those have some faith behind this and give it a chance and it, and if after and that's all super like vague and feel and this result this is why some of the other like 
side effects of politics that people don't like. Like, well, during the campaign, he said that this would happen or like he made this, he or she made this really general comment that was like this, like, you know, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And like what the, you know, the, the place where comments like that come about is some, I mean, and some of those are unwise, like the politician, mm-hmm. they, they're people, you know, like that particular comment yep. was not a super wise they, comment. They overgeneralized yeah, to get that rhetorical reaction. Yeah. Say, I mean, if, I, if I make people feel good about what's going to happen to them, then they'll be in, in favor of this policy right. that I know on paper is good. Right. But yeah, say, but yeah, doing that and helping people feel good about it is part of the thing you have to do mm-hmm. like it's not enough to just put the good policy together and put it in front of people because like honestly the other side could come come around and either lie about it or do a bunch of fear tactics about it and in this case we're like underhandedly talking about the affordable care act so it's like i'm that yeah, makes the can, implication that you i'm know, we can do the same thing um if we talk about the hillary clinton campaign because if you if you dig in and get to know her work a little bit um, through her whole political career, she is definitely this like heady kind of like political numbers or uh, like policies and data and numbers. Right. She's totally nerdy about all that Had stuff. Had a plan that sounded good about just about everything she, uh, from a certain political perspective. What she least. would appear to be lacking, um, and you hear a lot of analysts say this, um, you have a lot of argument about this from commentators like Ezra Klein, who Josh and I both like. Mm-hmm. Um, she is missing that get the people to trust the policy with the more generalized emotive reasoning. And you know what? Us just saying that goes back to the diversity thing, because the fact that we're saying that we're saying that also as two white guys, yeah. you know, two men. And it's like, I would say even drawing that conclusion where she lacks the emotive capacity, that is the common judgment of men towards her when part of that can be sexism and all of that as well. Um, I mean more so the argument you're making that you've got to have a gaining human trust element to how you talk about policies. Right. um, Where you would see that lacking in her campaign because she will err on the side of the, the nitty gritty like you know, nerdy political rational aspects of the policies. And then like you just get to further difficulty because even if even if somebody like her decides to make like the more emotional appeal because right. of there, all the there, other biases right. out there. Yes, I see like, what you're saying. There's a lot more to it. Than yeah, like that. other biases lead to well, it's like, well, then that's too emotional because X. Yes, mm-hmm. or I don't trust her because she was wearing shoulder pads. And yeah, everything whatever, in between. whatever other yeah. insane thing. Yep. All right. It's, uh, I think it's wrap up o'clock. So uh, where have we gotten in our discussion? Uh, I think that we, at least I hope we've made a fair case for that the Socratic method is a valuable way of determining things. Um, that it's a good method with a good track record of like getting things right and doing good things. Um, I don't know if in the space of an hour podcast, we could have fully made that case, but I I hope we've kind of, you know, spoken its best features as we've talked about it. But uh, again, we've come to the fact that it is not the only part of the equation in how we talk about politics. Um, Josh B., I think that you 
said it really well when you said it's part of our toolkit. It's something that we're carrying with us into discussion, um, but we've really got to apply it carefully. Yes. I say it's worth a disclaimer, like uh, dialectics is a dance. Like when you first try it, you kind of fumble about. So like if you start trying to do it, you have to get used to like talking in that way of like breaking down ideas. It's if you just try it once with your friends and it's like, wow, oh, everyone's so mad at me. Like that happens. You got to learn. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a skill that you learn over time to like do well. It's not just oh, okay now I'm talking dialectics. Switch on. <laughs> so disclaimer there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also. Um... Listeners, you do not have a free social pass to just use logic to tell all your political opponents that they're wrong. Um, I think we've made a really good case for that that is... Yeah, that ain't going to work. That It's not going to work. It's steeped in privilege. It flies in the face of ideas of liberty. Um, so, you know, political discourse is best done with empathy, as Josh has said, Um Dialectic is going to be an excellent thing in your tool belt. Josh and Michael, anything else? I think that's good. That was a good one. Cool. Don't don't be a jerk like Socrates. Don't be a jerk <laughs> like Socrates. Um, I know there seems to be like a theme of like a little bit of the hopelessness thing. My like my that's, take on that's it. That's a that's a theme of uh, MJ. <laughs> yeah. The way I've like tried to cope with that is like imagine like. Watching a kid grow up is how I can try and imagine the human race. Like, maybe we just need the experience. That's like, maybe we'll get, you know, it's the point you made. Like, we get through these things. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and we usually come out just a little bit better. So hopefully it's just, you know, young adolescence or whatever it is that humanity's like state of maturity is. Like, right. we're, we're working through this. <laughs> we're either, either work through it or the great filters right in front of us. Yeah. One of the two. Yeah. Um, Listeners, go check out a blog called Wait But Why and check out their blog post on the Fermi Paradox and you will uh, learn what the great filter is and why it's terrifying and why people like Josh and I like to talk about it being in the near future. But, uh, you know, that's something for you to explore on your own. Um, I foolishly was going to say at the beginning of this episode because I do like rationalist philosophy and like to to read up on this stuff that I'm less ignorant about this topic. But I feel like I really did get schooled by Josh's empathy argument. Um, So I have literally been made less ignorant by this podcast. Again, um, you can check out Josh's writing at joshbrez.com, J-O-S-H-B-R-E-Z.com. At the top of the episode, Michael, I don't think we got any kind of good social media spot for people to check you out. Is there some somewhere they can do that? Or so uh, Sherwood hyphen consulting, so like Sherwood Forest. Okay, Sherwood Consulting. So he's doing work there. So check that out. And uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of the MJ's Ignorant Podcast. Thanks, MJ. Thanks for having us.